Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Missionary God, today with a message entitled, What is the Gospel? So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I can't imagine that there would be one thing more important when training a missionary than to train him or her first to know the gospel accurately, and then second, to be able to share that gospel with others. It doesn't matter if it's a short-term missionary or a career missionary. It doesn't matter if it's a church planter or a medical doctor or nurse or someone helping a village obtain clean water. When on mission, as we have defined it, to spread the fame of God, to, to declare his splendor, When we finally get onto God's agenda, every missionary must know the gospel as well as they know their own name. You know, it's tragically the case that there are both pastors and missionaries who don't know the gospel. And it's also true that there are many who have gone to church for a lifetime, and they too, like the pastor who teaches them and and like the missionary they support, don't know the gospel or what the good news of Jesus is all about. So let's start by saying some things that in some circles is is contentious, but from a biblical framework, it's obvious. The gospel is not the gospel of caring for the needs of others. Now, the gospel does overflow in many areas, and the result is caring for others. But caring for the needs of others is not the gospel. I mean, think about it this way. Let's say you go out to an interview for a job as an automobile salesperson. And let's say your interviewer asks you, what's an automobile? And let's say your answer is, well, an automobile is a means of transportation. And let's say your interviewer says, wrong. And you protest, yeah, it is. And so the interviewer pulls a picture out of a train and then an airplane and then a mule and then finally a motorcycle. Are all these means of transportation, he asks. Well, yes, but all of those are not automobiles. Well, the same is true when we ask someone to define missions. You know, some people will say it means providing food and medicine and caring for the basic needs of people. Well, I might show you a picture of a UN agency that does exactly that. And then I might show you a number of non-governmental agencies that provide the same, but they're not missionary agencies. See, I've long believed from Scripture that we should stop calling agencies who only work to alleviate suffering missions agencies unless they also have a definitive plan to share the gospel. You know, this is one of the reasons I love Compassion Canada. I mean, for the very reason that they care for kids who are orphaned and severely impoverished and and all over the world, they provide food and a home and education and so forth, but they never neglect the sharing of the good news, connecting kids to Bible-believing churches. For if we care for someone's physical well-being, but neglect the salvation that's found in Jesus. We have shown a callous lack of regard for others. But we come back to our essential question. What is the gospel? What is it that we're to declare to the nations? I mean, when Jesus directly commanded his church, and here I'm quoting him, Matthew 28, verse 19, where he said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, while we do well to remember that we need to articulate what it means to make a disciple. Now, before I go on, I, I need to add that this is not only about missions. It's, it's also personal. Every single person should know the gospel. 
See, I know a number of individuals who thought they were Christians and for many years and then came to realize that they had never come to believe the gospel. And if you had asked them, when you stand before God and you must give an answer to him for your life, on what basis do you think you're going to go to heaven? And I still hear a great many people saying they've done the best they could. I hear some people saying that, you know, I've been baptized. And others say, I've gone to church all my life. And still others say, I'm a basically good person. And still others tell about how they've helped their fellow man. You see, in all of these answers, so many people typically give, they're counting on their own good deeds. They think that in themselves they've met the grade. And when it comes to heaven, they heap glory on themselves, and they neglect to give glory to God. Heaven, in their estimation, depends on them and not on God. And for this reason, unbeknownst to them, they've never had faith in God. Rather, instead, they've had faith in themselves. So what's the gospel? Or to put it in plain language, what is the good news of the Christian faith? Well, remember that Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the good news. And and what is it exactly that they preached? Well, let's listen to the Apostle Paul's description of his activity. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, and he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's a mouthful. Now, what an important mouthful. I want to remind you of the gospel, says Paul. And so if you're in doubt about it, let me remind you of it. And so we have to assume that what follows is shorthand for the good news that Paul preached to the people in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. Now, it wasn't just in Corinth. It was everywhere. This is the good news about Jesus that Paul preached everywhere he went. And for that matter, so did all the other apostles. You see, we know that this is what they preach because Paul says, this is the gospel you received. That is, this is the gospel you heard. And furthermore, he says, this is the gospel in which you stand, meaning this is the gospel that you still believe to this day. Paul's still not done. He says, this is the gospel by which you're being saved. Now, stop here because however you understand the gospel, it is about salvation. It's about being saved. Now, the fact that we need to be saved must mean that we're in trouble. So let's go back to the person who says, I think I'm going to make it to heaven because I think I've done my best. I'm I'm basically a good person. Well, if you think you're making the grade, then listen, you don't need to be saved. To be saved is to be rescued. It's like falling off a ship into the ocean, and now you're drowning. Unless someone saves you, you're lost. See, the confession of every person who has ever received the gospel is that I was saved. I I once was lost. I can't save myself. I know there are some so-called missionaries who will go overseas and simply assume that whatever religion they find people in, that these people will make it to heaven because they're basically good and they do good works. In short, they assume the people they encounter are not lost and they're not in need of being saved. And please understand that when we find a person who is not in need of being saved, we have no good news for them. See, imagine the difference between a person in first class on a large cruising ship. You know, their cabin is spacious. They have a wonderful balcony that looks out at the ocean. Their food is first class. The activities on the ship are breathtaking. The overall experience is wonderful. 
Now, imagine you show up in their cabin and say, I'm here to save you. Well, that person's going to be puzzled because they're doing just fine. Now, contrast that person to the one I described earlier who had fallen overboard. And we shout out, I'm here to save you. And if it is true that we have the means to save them, what we're offering them is extremely good news. I hope you hear that. But that's how Jesus spoke. See, he once told a parable, and it's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I hope you see. It's all about how you view yourself. If you think you're in a stateroom, in a large luxury vessel, Christ is not for you. There is no reason to humble yourself because you're already exalted. But if you think you're in the ocean and you're drowning, Christ is extremely good news. Or let me put it as plainly as I know how. If you think you're a sinner and that the best you have ever done isn't nearly good enough for heaven, If you think you're eternally condemned before God and that the judgment to come will leave you condemned, well, in that case, listen to me, you're lost. If Jesus comes to save you, that's good news. But if you think you're a good person and that when you finally go to the next life, God will accept you, well, in Jesus' words, you're exalting yourself. Your eternity is going to be humbling. Every day we're so grateful and humbled at how God is blessing this ministry and broadening its reach. We want to share that Back to the Bible Canada has recently eclipsed 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported and tuned in. If you've never visited the YouTube channel before, be sure to check it out at Back to the Bible Canada and consider leaving a comment while you're there. One listener recently wrote, I've been a daily listener to the broadcast for a number of years. I'm especially grateful for Dr. John's teaching that God has used to correct, to guide, and to encourage me in the faith. There are times when it seems like the message is designed exactly for me. For more information or to support Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. why we send missionaries. We think the whole world is drowning in sin and that Jesus is the Savior. There is good news to share. There's a gospel that must be known. I want to get back to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Paul is writing the Christian church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, and he says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And he adds, 
It is by this gospel that you're being saved. That is to say, as you continue to believe this good news about Jesus, you're being saved. I'm going to come back to the idea of being saved, but by the end of verse 2, he adds an urgent statement. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's to say, the gospel is not something you believe only once. You, You just keep believing it. That's why Paul writes these words. He doesn't want you to ever stop believing the gospel. Now, I've heard people say, you know, we need to keep hearing the gospel preached, but we also need to preach the gospel to ourselves. I think that's right. That is, unbelief always creeps in, and when we face our discouragement and despair, we need to rehearse the gospel. But still, while that's true, we've not yet heard what Paul means when he says the gospel. What is it exactly that Paul has been preaching? And so since we've started in 1 Corinthians 15:1-2, let's now move on to the beginning of verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now stop there. If you read 1 Corinthians, and for that matter, if, if you read through the entire Bible, one reads so many things. I mean, 1 Corinthians deals with, you know, problems in the local church, everything from church fights to sexual immorality to lawsuits to, to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, lots of other stuff as well. And if you read through other sections of the Bible, you know, one finds an amazing array of things that are being talked about. And from that, some people especially, if they're not paying attention, well, they'll think that Christianity is all about teaching you to be a better person. So, for instance, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Well, you should work on that. And then Proverbs teaches us that the fool spends everything he has and the wise man saves up little by little. Ah, good money management should be working on that too. And then Ephesians 5 teaches husbands to love their wives. Ah, good counsel should work on my marriage. And those portions that say I should give to the poor, well, I need to work on generosity as well. See, do you hear what I'm saying? In our confusion, some people never understand what the gospel is. They think the Christian faith is a matter of morals, learning to make basically good people into better people. And we carry on in this delusion until we come to the line we've just seen in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Here is what is of first importance. The gospel, says Paul, is the most important thing. Nothing but nothing is more important than this one thing that I taught you, says Paul, and that I also received from Jesus himself. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now reading all of verse 3. For I delivered to you as of First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. I can't imagine living in North America and never having seen a cross. Almost everyone knows that Jesus died on a cross. But the reason he died on a cross is of first importance. Indeed, the reason he died on the cross is the gospel. Let me put it another way. If your hope for heaven doesn't include the cross, you have no hope for heaven. You can't be saved unless your salvation, or again, to use my illustration of the man drowning in the ocean, you can't be saved unless the life raft of the cross is thrown in your direction. His cross is our salvation. It is our life raft. But but how? And here it's important to dispel many of the myths about the cross. The reason for the cross is not to showcase that men and women are capable of doing horrible and evil things. Of course, the cross does display that the evil that men do, but that's not the gospel. 
And second, the ultimate reason for the cross is not showing love to our enemies. I mean, Jesus showed extraordinary love for his enemies while on the cross, and it is also true that we can learn from that. But don't you see, when you believe that that's the reason for the cross, all you're doing is giving another morality lesson and not salvation to a man or a woman who's drowning. And third, the ultimate reason for the cross is not the defeat of Satan. And again, Jesus, in an extraordinary way, in a way that would take too long to explain here, really did render to Satan a crushing defeat on the cross. But that's not the center. That's not the thing of first importance. Look closely again at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. See, here's the thing of first importance. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. That is, Jesus' death substitutes for ours. His death forever showcases the lengths God would go to offer forgiveness and reconciliation with himself. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Everything is contained in that word substitution. Think of it this way. Christ lived a perfect life, and he offers us a gift. He'll gladly substitute his perfect life for our sin-stained lives. His record of love to God and others can be substituted for our callous disregard for God and others. There's more. Jesus also substitutes the punishment of our sins in his sacrifice. His death on the cross can be substituted for our punishment before God's bar of justice. In short, Jesus was condemned and we are rewarded. A substitution was made. I like to offer an illustration that I think helps. I'm told that back in the olden days on the Canadian prairies and, and also on the Great Plains in the U.S., the grassland that grew there naturally was so high that in the summer it could be higher than a man. And so every once in a while, the grass would catch on fire. And when it did, because the wind is often so strong, the fire will be driven along very quickly. It's very frightening. No one can run fast enough to outrun the fire. It simply overwhelmed more than one homesteader and cost them their lives. It was horrible to be burned to death. But there was a way to be saved. Many would burn a large swath of grass in a huge circle all around them. It was a controlled burn that would leave blackened earth in a large circle. And the grass fire would then come, and you would stand in the center of the already burnt ground. The fire would not burn there again, for everything in that place had already been burned once before. And that's how it is with you, my brother or sister. When the day of judgment comes, when the great and terrible righteous God calls his day of judgment, when the fire of his righteous judgment burns against all of our sins, we stand no chance. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his glorious presence. We will find on that day, we were never basically good people. We were basically sinful people. How will you be saved? The only way to be saved is to stand on the ground where the fire of God's wrath has already burned. That's why Jesus died. He took on himself the sins of the whole world, yours and mine. And as the sin bearer for the human race, he suffered and died on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suffering there as he did, forsaken by God, he suffered as an expression of the righteous anger of God against our sin 
God's anger burned against his Messiah on that day. If you want to be saved, you need to stand where the wrath has already burned. Stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in Christ. Throw your life unreservedly unto him. Stop boasting in what you've done and start boasting in what Christ has done. And so what must we do? See, you can't be saved unless you confess that you need a Savior. And you don't need a Savior unless you confess that you're a sinner and you're drowning. What you need to do is to tell God the truth. Tell him you've broken his commands and that you rightfully deserve hell. And by the way, God already knows that. You're not going to shock him. And then tell God that you want to turn from your sins and turn to his Messiah, falling at his feet for mercy. Paul says this is the gospel. You're being saved by that. That's because as we continue to believe this and live this, we find that there's not one thing in our lives that we don't surrender to Christ. Our marriage, our money, our jobs, our kids, our recreation, our eating, our sleeping, all the things that we long for, everything is thrown onto the cross of Christ and we trust him alone for all these things. And when we finally stand before God in judgment, We will say what the hymn writer sang, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, and that's the gospel. And that must be shared with every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. John, thank you so much for your message today, and I can't think of anything more suitable to do than to ask you to pray for those that that desire salvation today. Yeah, and let me say to you that if, however you're listening to this, I mean, if you're in your car right now, would you just pull over, just pull over and find a place where you can pour out your heart to God and simply say to him, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and there is no way that I can save myself. I have never imagined how much trouble I am before the throne of God's judgment. But I also know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died on the cross to save sinners. Well, then it must be, Lord, that you came to save someone like me. Here I am, Lord. I surrender my life into your hands. Take my life. I surrender to you. I trust in Christ alone and not in myself for my salvation. Thanks so much, John. And and for today and today only, we'd like to say that if you've prayed that prayer or if you're uncertain of your salvation, we'd like to offer you today uh, Dr. Neufeld's booklet, What is the Gospel? And you can have that free of charge simply by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. I'm so blessed and excited to welcome my dear friend, Andrew Marcus, as the host and director of our young adult ministry, In Doubt. Young people are leaving the church more than ever before, and there's never been a more urgent time to reach young adults with the gospel. In a world where there's so much information but so little truth, it's absolutely crucial that young adults have the opportunity to hear what the Bible has to say. I know Andrew, and I'm confident that he'll be led by the Spirit to guide in doubt in a direction that will have a profound impact on their understanding of the Bible and their personal walk with Jesus. 
please pray for Endowed. And can I ask you to consider supporting this important ministry with a financial gift? Just visit endowed.ca. Thanks so much and God bless.